Hello and welcome to the latest Moneymakers Weekly Investment Trust podcast. I'm Jonathan Davis, the editor of the Investment Trust Handbook, and I am joined as usual today by Simon Elliott, a head of investment trust research at Winterflood Securities. Well, if you believe the newspapers, Simon, this week has all been about retail investors mucking up the markets in the United States and to a lesser extent over here by doing strange things with uh, short-selling hedge funds and so on. I mean, if you haven't read this story, it's uh, quite an amusing story, but it's not really, I don't think, central to what we're talking about. So let's just start by having a look at what's been going on in the markets and the investment trust sector. Well, it has been a difficult week for the markets this week. I mean, the return on the wider UK market, it'll probably end down about three, three and a half percent. And that represents the worst return in the last three months. Uh, the investment company sector has done a little bit better, but still end up in negative territory. And that means for the month of January, overall, uh, both investment companies and the UK market will, will end down investment companies a little bit worse. But you're right, a lot of talk about retail trading and a lot of talk about uh, the global supply of vaccines and the South African variants being kind of key parts there. But uh, hopefully uh, good times are ahead. Yes, the vaccine stories point to uh, fears that the recovery may not be quite as soon or indeed as sharp as uh, uh, many people originally hoped or expected. Uh, and indeed, we talked before about the apparent frothiness of the market uh, because of the very strong showing in the fourth quarter last year, uh, which has led to some people talking about bubbles and all those kind of things that come around every so often. We'll have to see how that one pans out, obviously. Let's talk about some corporate news, though, and let's start off with a subject which never ceases to cause uh, interest and indeed uh, heated arguments uh, here and everywhere, and that is about the subject of manager fees on the investment trusts. And uh, there's been a development here which is, um, well, I think uh, certainly striking and uh, will be interesting to see how it plays out. So tell us what's been happening here, Simon. Yeah, a very interesting development this week. Uh, two investment companies, BH Global and BH Macro, both managed by Brevin Howard Capital Management, who have written to the two respective boards and basically um, making proposals to increase the fixed fees uh, back to the 2% per annum level that they were a number of years ago. So the story here was the, these two funds, they hit probably, it's fair to say, a slightly indifferent period of performance a few years ago. And about that stage, the, the base fees were renegotiated down to uh, about 1% or so. Subsequently, performance has rebounded. They, they performed uh, quite well in recent years, particularly BH Macro. Uh, and at this stage, the fund manager, the investment manager has turned around and said, we'd like our fees back or I'd like our fees to return to the previous level. It's fair to say they haven't been doing this for nothing in the interim. Um, there's a 20% performance fee, uh, which is not uncommon in the world of hedge funds. So 2 and 20 effectively is the proposal. Uh, and they've taken it to the point where the investment manager has said that they're proposing that these proposals be put to shareholders in an EGM. And if the uh, support is not forthcoming, then they will serve notice of a termination of the management agreement. In other words, they're quite happy to walk away. So this is an unusual situation and be very interesting to see how it develops. Yes, it certainly will. And I'm myself trying to think uh, what I should think about this. It's my chance I happen to be a shareholder in one of these uh, two trusts. I haven't really had time to think it through. But um, I think it's fair to say that uh, the hedge fund sector was a big disappointment or has been a big disappointment over the years. Uh, and the uh, the BH Global and BH Macro have been one of the funds that actually have done uh, relatively well and proved their certainly their defensive qualities during uh, market sell-offs. So I guess they're going to try and uh, trade on that fact as one of the few remaining hedge funds uh, in the investment trust sector, which has performed uh, particularly well. 
but going back, getting fees back up again, that is reversing the trend that we've seen in the in the rest of the investment trust sector. I noticed you said they made a proposal. It's sort of a proposal with a loaded gun attached to it that they're going to walk away if they don't get what they want. Um, but the EGM, what kind of vote would that require to get through? And how do you think that might go? How might play with the shareholders? I don't know is the, is the answer to the first one. I suspect it would be an ordinary resolution, in which case it's 50% of those um, uh, voting on the day. How shareholders react? It's a difficult one to call. As you say, this is an unusual situation. It is not as if it's certainly in the investment company world that we're uh, inundated with uh, hedge fund managers. As you say, at one stage, and I'm going back probably 10, 15 years, there were an awful lot of hedge funds, particularly fund of hedge funds, actually, in our space. They basically proved to be disappointing, going back to the global financial crisis 2008-9, and many of them disappeared uh, not long thereafter. So Brevin Howard, or the 2BH Macro Global Fund, are the survivors. They have performed well over the long term. And one suspects that really, if shareholders do want uh, to continue that kind of exposure to, to these mandates, that there is a price to be paid. And so that's what uh, people are going to have to weigh up here. But yeah, a very interesting situation. We haven't seen anything quite like this before. I did take a quick look at the performance record. And of course, I think there's a sort of tactical element here, because as you say, the returns that uh, these uh, trusts have made have been, well, they've all been positive every year, which is one of the things that uh, like an absolute return mandate that uh, a lot of hedge funds in the old days used to offer uh, and signally failed to achieve uh, the idea of making you know some kind of positive return every year regardless of whether the market's going up or down but they had a good year last year i think they were you know which was a tough year for a lot of people certainly during the middle of the year and yet their uh, share price performance last year was uh, was pretty good uh, i think it was up about 20% or so so i guess they'll be using that as a kind of lever to try and persuade uh, the board in the first instance, then the shareholders, that this is a good idea. Uh, that We've watched that one with great interest. And I guess I'll have to, as I said, make my own mind up at some point. So the two BH uh, Brevin Howard Investment Trust, they have a, a, something like a billion pounds or something, don't they, in assets. I, I'm just having a quick look. So therefore, we're not talking about peanuts in terms of a difference between a 1% and a 2% annual management fee, uh, quite apart from the possibility of earning a performance fee as well. How have these trusts been rated and how has the market responded to this news? Yeah, no, it's a good point, actually, because we have seen both these investment companies derated on the back of this uh, development. So they were both uh, trading at premiums. In fact, the premium on BH Macro had pushed on a little bit. So in the last 12 months, certainly the, the sterling line of that investment company's trade on an average of 6% over the last 12 months, and it now finds itself on a 2% discount. So there was a marked decrease in the share price after this news, though it has stabilised after a couple of days of heading south, it has stabilised again. Okay, so let's talk about another trust which is uh, doing something on the corporate front, and this is JP Morgan Indian. What have they been uh, saying this week? They announced this week a performance-related conditional tender offer, and the way that this will work is that basically shareholders will be offered a 25% tender offer at NAV less cost if the fund's NAV total return fails to exceed the MSCI India Index on a cumulative basis over a five-year period. And that starts from the current financial year, which is the 1st of October last year, actually. So if you remember, I think we actually talked about this particular uh, investment trust maybe at the start of January because they had results out just ahead of Christmas. And it was fair to say they weren't um, particularly sparkling results. They, they have struggled a little bit. So they put this conditional tender uh, on the table. These are not uncommon. I think we've talked about these before, actually, in the uh, emerging markets and Asian space. These uh, This idea of conditional tenders if your 
performance is a little bit weak over a period of time or your discount is wider than a particular level. So it's a chance to uh, shareholders to take a view if, if performance is not particularly great, that maybe there will be a liquidity event further down the track. I think you said in the past, Simon, that you're not particularly keen on tender offers. You don't think they're necessarily the best way for uh, boards to react. Are there some sort of sectors where they've been more effective than others, or is it just a, a general observation that you make about them? Um, just remind us again what it is that you don't particularly like about them. No, you make a good point. I mean, tender offers certainly do have their place, and I think they work particularly effectively where it's been clear that there is a significant stock overhang. For instance, there might be an institutional shareholder who wishes an exit, who's a large, substantial uh, shareholder, and really, uh, you know, to just buy back that position uh, in the absence of any ongoing demand, it would be far more efficient to, to do that as a tender offer. I think the point with conditional tender offers is that there is that degree of uncertainty whether this is the best thing for this investment trust, given that it will happen at some point in the future. And some of these conditional tender offers have been triggered by very small margins. In other words, you know, turn our minds back to March last year when we saw that market sell off. And obviously, a lot of investment trusts performed quite uh, poorly at that particular time. Discounts widened out. If, for instance, you had a conditional tender offer that just happened to coincide with that kind of period of market volatility, then you'd find yourself offering shareholders a tender at a time where perhaps it would be the wrong thing to do, that you should really take a longer term view on it. I think really when we talk about conditional tender offers, it's a response often to wide discount levels. And I think the question should really be, why are you trading on that kind of discount level? What what can you do about it? Is it a performance issue? Is it the fact that your asset class is out of favour? Uh, or maybe you've perhaps got the wrong manager? You know, all of these are considerations. And to offer some kind of liquidity event at three, four, five years in the future, I don't think necessarily addresses that. So I think that's our um, objections to it. Let's move on then and talk about another investment trust, which is in the news this week. And this is one which uh, obviously has had a a lot of time in the headlines in the last couple of years, and this is the Schroeder UK Public Private Trust, formerly known as Woodford Patient Capital, SUPP. The uh, management of this trust was uh, taken over in December 2019 by Schroeder's, and they've been busy over the last year trying to uh, put the portfolio back into some kind of shape and to uh, clean up the mess that they inherited, if I can put it sort of bluntly as that. And uh, they'll be making some progress. And this week we heard another step in that uh, particular process, did we not? That's absolutely right. So they announced this week that they're looking to sell a basket of seven assets to an outfit called Rosetta Capital. They've agreed a price of £49 million, though it does go up a little bit uh, to 52 once some follow-on investments are paid for as well. So uh, why is this important? Because what it allows the investment trust to do is to make a bit of a dent into its debt. It's quite geared, uh, Shredder UK Public Private. Um, they managed to extend the borrowing out for a couple of years, which was positive. We already knew that. But this allows it to, to bring it back to a kind of more manageable level. In addition to which, we learned only a few weeks earlier that um, KaiMab, which is another key holding in the portfolio, uh, is going to be acquired by Sanofi. So again, providing additional liquidity for the investment trust. So those two kind of disposals, as and when they happen, means that the investment trust will, uh, on a pro forma basis at least, become ungeared. So that is a, a positive step forward. It also means that the, the new investment managers, or new, they've been involved now for 13, 14 months, Ben Wicks and Tim Greed, uh, it gives them uh, far more flexibility to kind of reposition the portfolio. So they've talked in the past how at the moment it's skewed to very early stage companies, it's very skewed to the healthcare sector, uh, and also there's a lot of private companies in there. Uh, and what they want to do is to kind of reposition 
the portfolio. So a larger emphasis on, on publicly listed companies, uh, broaden out just away from healthcare, and also some later stage uh, growth companies as well. And this allows them to, to move the story on a bit. So they're making progress, in other words, but I, I suppose the key point remains that, uh, as you say, before they can actually get the portfolio into a shape which they actually would have designed themselves if they had the opportunity to uh, to do so, they are still wrestling with the, the legacy. They obviously think there's value in there because they said that at the time they took it over, but uh, it's uh, a bit of a lopsided portfolio, as you say. And so for the moment, one might say that... Um, you know, if you wanted to be in early stage companies, there are ways to do that. If you wanted to be in healthcare companies, there are other trusts to do that. It won't be until they finally kind of cleared up and got this thing into a shape they want that you could really say that uh, perhaps that uh, you actively wanted to be involved in this trust. Uh, however, I guess the other factor of it is the shares fell a long way and the discount widened a long way. And so there might be some bargain hunters out there who think this might be a slightly safer thing to get back into and there may be some upside. What's been happening to the discount on the share price and uh, where do you think they are in terms of uh, that kind of cycle that I've uh, described? So the discount has narrowed. It's probably around about 20% or so to the NAV at the moment. And just to put that into perspective, in over the last 12 months, it's averaged 42%. So it was on a very wide level indeed and has narrowed. Uh, and in fact, so far this year, in, in total return terms, obviously quite a short period, only about a month or so, but it's up about 11%. So it's outperformed the market. And, and really the key factor there. Uh, was the announcement that Kaimap will be acquired by Sanofi. But uh, you're right, there are still, there's still issues in terms of the valuation. So, for instance, it's worth pointing out that the, the seven assets that they've agreed to sell to Rosetta, the acquisition price on those represents a discount to the carrying value of about 19%. Um, so they have taken a haircut on that. Uh, though at the same time, uh, there's a holding in Immunicore. They've partially sold that holding as part of the basket of assets, but it looks as if that particular company will see an IPO in the in the short term, literally in the next few weeks or so. So there are some green shoots um, appearing in the portfolio. But as you say, I, I think the managers would be the first to admit that there is still work to be done on this. And it's very much a long term project. Yes. Yeah, so one could say perhaps they should have kept the patient capital in their name. That would have been a, a, a clue to what the strategy is from here. And I guess the other point to make, though, is that although the discounts narrowed quite significantly. I mean, the shares are still... Well, they're still trading under 40p or something compared to the 100p issue price uh, back in uh, whenever it was five years or so ago when uh, Woodford raised 800 million for this uh, strategy. So um, the discount can narrow, but it's not like you're making a huge uh, gain if you're, uh, if you're still underwater in this uh, particular trust. So let's move on and talk about fundraising. We uh, follow corporate news with fundraising every week and, then, and there's been more fundraising activity, including news about a couple of IPOs, one that's been successfully completed and another that is uh, been announced. Let's start with the one that's been successfully completed, and that is VH Global Sustainable Energy. Perhaps not a total surprise that this is in the uh, renewable energy space. What's the story there, Simon? So they announced this week that they'd raised uh, just short of £243 million through their IPO, which is, is a decent size issue. Um, probably a little bit short. I think according to uh, some of the media chat, they were looking for £400 million, uh, but that would seem a little bit on the optimistic side, given the, some of the IPOs that we've seen uh, in the last year or so. But £243 is a decent size IPO. Uh, as you note, they're looking to um, invest in a diversified portfolio of global sustainable energy infrastructure assets. And that's, I think, the key to this one. It is going to be quite diversified. So you're going to see some uh, wind and solar 
uh, a battery exposure in there, but also clean fuel storage will also be a feature. Uh, and on a country basis as well, um, the US and the UK will certainly be in there, but as will countries such as Australia, Brazil, and Bulgaria as well. So Victory Hill are the outfit behind this one, and I suspect they'll be delighted that they've got this one away. Yeah, so the ticker for this one is going to be GSEO, and the shares are going to start trading on the 2nd of February. Uh, and I'm sure that'll uh, get some interest because of its uh, broad uh, mandate in a very, uh, what was a very sexy area, I suppose one could say at the moment. And hard on its heels comes news of another IPO, which is... Uh, Another infrastructure investment trust proposal, uh, but not quite the same strategy as the uh, sustainable energy one that we just described. No, that's right. This is, again, differentiated. It's Cordiant Digital Infrastructure, and they're targeting £300 million through their IPO. They're targeting an NAV total return of 9% when they're fully invested. Uh, and unsurprisingly, the dividend will be a, a significant part of that. So they're looking to pay uh, 1p in their first financial year. Um, but by their fifth financial year, they're targeting about 4p, so a significant increase. They will invest in core infrastructure of the digital economy, such as data centres, fibre optic networks and mobile tiles in the UK, Europe and North America. So that's the difference. Uh, one of the features of this IPO is that investors will receive one subscription share for every eight ordinary shares. That is something that we've seen in the past uh, with investment trust launches, but not for a little while. Uh, and the manager has a pipeline of 1.5 billion euros, uh, including US data centres, Scandinavian fibre and European mobile tower. So they should, I, I guess they would hope to deploy the capital reasonable, reasonably quickly. The closing date on this one is the 12th of February uh, and admission is expected on the 16th of February, assuming they're successful. Yes, well, this looks like a, a slightly different uh, variant, something we haven't quite seen before, something that's focusing on this particular specialist area. I have to ask you this question because it's my favourite question, which is uh, which sector will this go into, you think, as a member of the Stats Committee? I'm sure you'll have a, a, a preliminary thought on this one. Obviously, you're not the, the sole arbiter of where these things go, but it, this will go into infrastructure somewhere, will it? It certainly will do. So I think most people at the moment look at infrastructure in kind of two distinct buckets. Buckets probably not being the best term, but a kind of more general social infrastructure and then a renewable energy uh, infrastructure. But it, it occurs to me uh, and I'm sure some of my colleagues on the Learned Stats Committee might take a different view, quite possibly. But the, the, the sector is growing apace that it's almost at the stage, I think, where there could be sub-sectors you know, introduced. How exciting. I can barely wait for the next meeting. But it's uh, something that we will no doubt discuss. But it, it's, it is an important point. This is an area that we are seeing a huge amount of growth, a lot of new uh, funds being launched in this area. And as established, they are becoming um, quite differentiated. Before we go on to the next news about fundraising, you might just, uh, I'll have to ask you this again as a resident technical expert here, just explain what a subscription share is and how it works and why would uh, a company issue them? I can ask you a corporate finance uh, nerds question after this, but tell me just briefly, how do they work, subscription shares? So a subscription share is uh, very similar to a warrant, if people are familiar with those. So it uh, gives the holder the right, but not the obligation to subscribe for uh, an ordinary share at a, a pre-subscribed price on a particular date. And we saw, probably going back about 10 years or so, possibly even longer, quite a wave of subscription shares or warrants issued by a number of investment trusts. It's a way of potentially growing uh, at a time when possibly you're trading at a discount to NAV. So it's a way of, of actually raising new money, potentially assuming that the subshares are in the money at the point 
uh, where they have to be invested. But we haven't seen any for a while, or there are certainly not that many. Um, but one has reared its head. The CC Japan Income and Growth Investment Trust have announced that they are looking subject to shareholder approval to make a bonus issue. And this is how they tend to work in the past. So basically, there'll be one subscription share issued for every five ordinary shares held uh, in mid-February. And basically, the holders will have the opportunity to exercise those subshares on the last business day of every quarter, beginning uh, on the 31st of March this year and finishing on the, uh, February 2023. And the subscription price will be equal to uh, a 1% premium to the NAV as at the 15th of February this year. So in terms of why people use these subscription shares, I mean, from the point of view of the shareholder, first of all, it sometimes sounds as if you're getting something for nothing. In other words, you are getting an opportunity to subscribe for the shares at what may be a discount to some future price. I think that's how it works. But of course, there's no free money in this world. So somebody must pay for that. And presumably, the people who pay for that are the people who don't own the subscription shares at the future, and they get slightly diluted. Is that not right? That's correct. So there is dilution to the ordinary shares uh, if the subscription shares end up in the money. That's exactly right. Some people like these types of uh, paper, effectively like these types of securities, and other people find them a little bit annoying. One of the reasons why we haven't seen that many in recent years is because my understanding is, and I think I'm correcting this, by issuing a subscription shares, you become a sophisticated investment. And I think that causes problems for some retail investors. I think I'm correct in saying that. In addition, um, there are various people who, who don't like holding them for their clients, particularly in the wealth management world. And so you often find some of these things sold. If you're in any doubt, if you do have an investment trust, an ordinary share class and a subscription share is issued, then effectively you can sit on these things. And as long as you hold the unit, in other words, both together, um, then you shouldn't suffer any dilution. That's an important thing to note. And at the point where they do come to be exercised, assuming they're in the money, and if you don't quite get round to ticking the right box or all the rest of it, then a trustee uh, is appointed and, and should look after your interests. But they do make uh, an investment trust, which some would argue is already a slightly more complicated structure, even more complicated. So as I say, not everyone's cup of tea. And is it common for these subscription shares to be traded in the market separately? Is that something? I mean, you, there's always an issue about attached and detached, as I remember. Is it, does that apply to subscription shares as well as to uh, other kinds of warrants and so on? Yeah, so they are absolutely, they are tradable. And that's that's part of the attraction to some people because effectively they give you uh, geared exposure to the ordinary share class. So for some people, you know, particularly if um, they, they can be quite a liquid and therefore you can see kind of pricing opportunities and, and some people will look to get involved. But as I say, historically, they've been a feature, but it, it's the kind of thing that people who have to have quite a close interest in the sector uh, and be on top of their maths as well would tend to get involved with. So we're certainly not trying to recommend this as an area for people to dabble in unless they really know what they're doing uh, and indeed are allowed to do so. Let's move on to some results, something a little less nerdy, if you like. Uh, and let's talk, first of all, about the Henderson Smaller Companies Investment Trust, another one of these popular trusts in the UK smaller companies sector, HSL. What's been their story with their latest results? Yep. So Henderson Smaller Companies Investment Trust had its interim results out for the six months to the end of November last year. A pretty decent set of results, actually. The NAV total return was up uh, just short of 21%, uh, and that was just slightly behind their benchmark return. Uh, but saying that, they did outperform their peer group, which was up 14% in the period. And actually, the share price total return was up nearly 28%, so marked outperformance. And that reflected the fact 
that its discount narrowed from about 10% or so and moved into about 5% by the end of November. So Neil Herman has been responsible for this investment trust for oh quite a few years now, since uh, 2002. And in fact, I think the stat is that something out of 15 out of the last 17 financial years, this investment trust has outperformed its benchmark. As the name would suggest, it's it's smaller companies. It's probably got a bit more of a mid-cap bias, it's fair to say, in the UK marketplace. And uh, the holdings that work quite well for it in this particular period included Renishaw, Impacts Asset Management and Codemasters, um, while unfortunately not holding William Hill and S4 Capital probably hurt performance a little bit. But it has been a very strong long-term performer, this one. Indeed. So let's move on, look at some overseas investment trusts now. Let's start with uh, Invesco Asia, IAT, uh, in the right sort of region to perform well. And how did it do? It did well, yeah. It had interim results out to the end of October. Um, NEV total return up 24%, uh, and that compared with 19% for the benchmark. Uh, share price total return, it was up 20%. Its discount widened out a little bit. And actually, that's a, an interesting part of this particular story. Uh, one of the things that this uh, investment trust has done is an, announce an enhanced dividend policy. I think we've talked about these before, whereby there's an element of capital is paid out as income. Uh, they're looking to pay two semi-annual dividends, each equivalent to 2% of the NAV. So all things being equal, it should be about a yield of 4% or so. In addition to which, they've got one of these conditional tender offers that we discussed. That's a 25% tender offer, uh, and that's conditional on uh, how it performs over the five years to 2025. But Ian Hargreaves is actually coming up for his 10-year anniversary on this uh, investment trust as responsible, and the long-term performance is not too shabby, particularly now that it's moved into the Asia equity income subsector. It compares quite well to its peer group. It's overweight India at the moment, which is another differentiator. Uh, and the manager's quite uh, enthusiastic on that market. It's been adding to exposure in the private banks there. We should acknowledge that uh, Folk de Mio, we've had, we have highlighted the fact that Invesco has struggled with its UK mandates in recent years. But this uh, particular one seems to be performing well. How does it trade in the market uh, and how does that compare to its uh, its peer group to such as it is? Well, it has been re-rated in recent times. So over the last 12 months, it's had an average discount of 11% and it currently finds itself on about a 6% discount or so. However, I think that re-rating is partly because of the, the move it's made to the Asia-Pacific income peer group and the fact that it's adopted an enhanced dividend policy. Um, and just to put that in perspective, if you look at the five investment trusts that are in the Asia-Pacific Income Peer Group, the average weighting is about a 2% discount. So a number of them are trading on premiums. And clearly, that's one of the attractions of adopting that policy, the enhanced dividend policy. OK, so let's move on and talk about an investment trust which has the great luxury of not having a direct comparator in the investment trust sector. And that is uh, an old friend of ours, J.P. Morgan Russian Securities. Not everybody rushes out to buy Russian securities, but uh, they've had uh, been going a long time. And as we pointed out before, they have one of the best 30-year track records of any investment trust, uh, which may have something to do with the uh, the volatility and the risk of what, uh, what you're being invited to invest in. But tell us what their uh, latest uh, results are. Yeah, the latest results are probably not quite so good, uh, but they did outperform on a relative basis. So these are the final results for the 12 months to the end of October last year in which time they had an NAV total return was actually down 17%, but that compared with a fall of 21% uh, for its benchmark. Gearing was was a factor as well. But yes, I mean, hugely experienced uh, investment manager, Oleg, I'm going to pronounce his surname as 
Brilliov. That's probably entirely incorrect, but uh, always interesting. If you ever get the chance to hear him present, he's a very colourful character. And certainly the Russian market um, is probably equally colourful, to be honest. But clearly uh, a lot of chat, as always, about uh, energy. Uh, a key area of that particular market. And in fact, this investment trust is underweight the energy market, though you will still see Luke Hall and Gazprom uh, in the top 10 holdings. In terms of the discount, and it's trading on a double-digit discount, about 11% or so at the moment, the board has committed to repurchase about 6% of the share capital uh, every year. And in fact, in the previous year, the year of this results, that added about 5p to the NAV return over the period. I mean, to give you an indication of the volatility of this one, I mean, I look, I'm just looking at the AIC uh, stats on this, and it says the one-year share price return is minus uh, 11.6%, the five-year return is 183%, and the 10-year return is 24%. So you get a clue from that that it's been a real roller coaster ride. It has a lot to do with uh, what's been happening in the commodity markets and the oil price, obviously, in particular, but also uh, it's just the nature of the kind of uh, investing that's going on there that it's uh, extremely volatile. So... Uh, uh, you have to be aware of that one. Let's move on and talk about something which is uh, perhaps a little bit more um, uh, mundane, and that is uh, the BMO Managed Portfolio Growth. And it's sister trust, the uh, BMO Managed Portfolio Income, BMPG and BMPI. And I think this is a like a fund of funds uh, investing in other investment trusts. Uh, and have been around for a while, the experienced manager. What's been the story there? That's exactly right. So actually, to, to be clear, it's one investment trust, the BMO Managed Portfolio, and it has two share classes, the growth and the income share class. But this investment trust had its interim results out for the six months to the end of November. Both share classes did very well, actually, but the, the growth share class was up 20% in NAV total return terms during that period, that compared with a rise of 7% for its benchmark. And as you correctly say, it is a fund of investment trust. So some of the, the, the top performing names in the period were, were um, very familiar names to us, Scottish Mortgage, Artemis Alpha Trust and uh, Henderson Opportunities. And then on the income leg, the NAV total return was up 13%, again, outperforming that 7% benchmark return. Uh, and some of the top performers uh, included uh, Princess Private Equity, the JP Morgan Global Emerging Markets Income Fund and Law Debenture. So again, I think we've talked about this one before. Peter Hewitt, a hugely experienced, some would say, uh, veteran uh, investment manager. Very interesting to see how he's set out his portfolio, his two portfolios effectively of investment trust and his thoughts on the sector at the moment. Yes, it is a very good way to get a, a kind of second professional opinion about what's happening in the investment trust sector, to look at these uh, handful of trusts that do invest in other investment trusts. It's quite a good way to, uh, if you like, to benchmark your own thinking about something. Never does any harm. How has that one performed? What do you think it should be compared to normally? Who are the peer group for that one? As you know, there are a number of kind of funds of investment trusts. I mean, probably one of the, the better known ones, um, Sir Nick Greenwood, on might and global opportunities, but he, he has a slightly different approach. Um, so he's looking for kind of value opportunities and investment trusts that have probably fallen uh, a little bit off the radar of most mainstream investors, whereas Peter's portfolios tend to be uh, very much the mainstream uh, investment trusts that we discuss every week uh, and are pretty well known. So they're, they're doing slightly different things. Um, it's fair to say over a five-year period, Peter's probably got the bragging rights at the moment, certainly on the growth portfolio, it's up 89%. And though might and global opportunities up 76%. So both have significantly outperformed the FTSE All share over that, that time period. And again, as we've talked about before, the fact that investment trust companies have had a great run now for a period of time has obviously helped both managers. 
Yeah, so it helps to have the big performers, the uh, the Bailey Gifford Trust and so on in there. If you didn't have Scottish Mortgage, you're kind of pedalling up a, a steep hill, if you like. Let's move on and talk about another infrastructure. This is an infrastructure trust, uh, 3i Infrastructure. One of the big names in uh, in private equity over the years, 3i, of course, but uh, this is their infrastructure trust. What can we say about them? So they announced a uh, performance update for the last three months of last year, a Q4 2020 update. Um, basically, the portfolio is performing in line with the manager's expectation and uh, possibly more importantly for shareholders, it's on track to meet its dividend target for the financial year ending 31st of March 2021. And that's a 9.8p dividend target. And that represented a year-on-year increase of 6.5%. So obviously quite important. It's fair to say the, the, the kind of total income and non-income cash was down a little bit in the period but the story still remains uh, relatively positive. And they've also received some deferred proceeds from the sale of a company uh, back in December, WIG. So pretty positive. And again, a good insight into what's going on in the infrastructure world at the moment. Yeah, so that'll be another challenge for you where to put that one, I guess. If you do start cutting up the infrastructure cake, that will be an interesting uh, issue for you. Let's talk about a renewable energy one. This is uh, Greencoat UK Wind. Uh, has done exceptionally well, traded a big premium. Uh, what's the story there? So again, they had an update for the last three months of last year. And uh, this, again, was positive. The NAV was up 1.5p in that period. And actually, a material increase in the short-term power price uh, has been a factor there. And that hasn't always been the case. I think we probably talked sometime uh, last year about how power prices uh, seem to be declining. And that was a real headwind for for this fund and and some of its peers. Uh, That hasn't been the case in this final period. And again, probably more importantly, um, is where are they in terms of the dividend? And again, the story there is is pretty good. They've increased their target dividend for 2021i this year to seven spot one eight p, and uh, that at the moment the cover the dividend cover for the full year is one point three times. So they seem to be quite well placed. But that dividend increase for this year that's in line with RPI uh, inflation. So uh, again, on terms of the energy generation last year, it was a little bit behind budget, probably about 3% or so. Power prices are a bit behind, but that doesn't seem to have affected that NAV growth. So just one point I noted here, and this might be of general interest to shareholders in these things. I mean, they put out an NAV announcement for the fourth quarter, but they don't put out their annual results uh, until next month. Is that because they have a different year end or is it? No, it must be the same year end. So what else would shareholders expect to find in the annual report they don't actually need to know uh, after just looking at the NAV? You make a good point. It's worth noting that, I mean, obviously it depends on the investment company and particularly the asset class involved, but quite often you'll find NAV announcements. This is true for private equity. It'll be true for often for the property funds as well. We'll get NAV uh, estimates. They're often estimated NAVs as at, say, the calendar year end or as at the financial year end before we get the full results. Now, obviously, there's a lot more disclosure goes into the full results. So that's what we'll see on the 25th of February uh, in the case of Greencoat UK Wind. But this is not uncommon at all. Okay, so let's move on and briefly touch on one which I think is in a sector we don't spend a lot of time on because it is fairly specialised, and this is the debt sector. And in some cases, we want to avert our gaze because some of them are not done very well. But let's talk about one uh, which is uh, possibly among the better known, which is M&G Credit Income, M&G, a well-known investor in the bond market. So what's been the story with this particular trust? So they announced this week a couple of bits and pieces, actually, but their interim dividend for the final quarter, Q4 last year, of 1.95p. So effectively, the full year dividend for 2020 
uh, represents an annualized rate of LIBOR plus 4%. And that was the level targeted at launch. But actually, the story is moving on a little bit. Quite interesting, the, the investment team's comments in terms of where they see the marketplace uh, in their asset class at the moment and, and where the portfolio is being positioned. So, for instance, about 60% of the portfolio is held in long-term private or illiquid assets. And actually, um, as I say, the investment team's commentary is that they're looking to rotate away from public bonds into private transaction. And that's really on a, on a valuation basis. And also because of the, the difficulty in the short to medium term um, that some of the sectors they think will face uh, and probably not no longer offering attractive risk-adjusted returns. They've also taken some profits on some of the more defensive names as well. So quite a bit of portfolio activity moving on. But as I say, the shift has been towards more private assets on that one. Yes, I noticed a little note in your write-up of this one which said that the uh, the manager still sees much to remain cautious about. <laughs> if you're a bond investor, I guess that is something that, well, first of all, that's your natural uh, mindset, I think. You know, bond uh, managers are paid to worry about things and equity investors are paid to be uh, optimistic about things, I guess you can say. And indeed, a lot of talk about rising uh, bond yields and so on and possibly inflation coming back and so on. Uh, I can see why the manager still sees much to remain cautious about in the uh, particular sector that they're operating in. Let's move on and talk about one again we have mentioned a couple of times, Oakley Capital Investments. This is a uh, it's a private equity trust and uh, trades on a discount like they all do or nearly all do. Uh, what's been the story here? So Oakley Capital Investments had its trading update for 2020. Uh, basically a pretty decent story here. The NAV total return for the year uh, is 18%. They gave a quite interesting breakdown of, of how their various portfolio companies are performing. So it's a relatively concentrated portfolio with actually 24 portfolio companies, of which 17 are meeting or exceeding expectations. In other words, don't seem to be badly impacted from COVID-19. However, there are three. Three of those portfolio companies have seen a significant impact, uh, and they are in uh, the direct-to-consumer areas and, and what they've deemed to be physical footprint so as always with these private companies, it's a bit of a mixed picture, but that NEV total return up uh, 18%. And part of the reason for that performance is actually they bought quite a significant amount of shares back and that resulted in an NEV uplift of uh, not too far off 13p. Quite a lot of portfolio activity. They saw a good level of proceeds last year, £341 million uh, to be precise. And actually this investment trust company is sitting on quite a bit of cash at the moment, uh, equivalent to 31% of net assets. And then we can uh, move on to Standard Life Private Equity, also in the similar Similar line of business, but not quite the same uh, approach. But let's talk about them. SLP, this one is. That's right. So Standard Life Private Equity, uh, they had their annual results out for the year to the end of September. So this is a fund of private equity funds. Uh, so you get more diversification. But in that year to the end of September, they had an NAV total return of up about 12% or so. And that compared with a decline of uh, nearly 17% for the FTSE all share. Uh, share price not quite so good as the NAV, actually it was down 5%. They pay an enhanced dividend as well. Um, and that was actually increased by 3% in the year to, to 13p. So the yield on this one at the moment is about three, three and a half percent. But as mentioned, the, the underlying portfolio seems to be doing pretty well. The investment manager put that down to its exposure to technology, healthcare and, and consumer staple sectors. And just that point on diversification. So they estimate there are about 450 underlying companies 
uh, that the portfolio is exposed to. But it's really the exposure to the top private equity outfits, predominantly in Europe, but they have got some US names in there as well. So they reckon there are about 17 key relationships or so uh, to some of the leading, they would argue, leading private equity firms in the world and particularly in Europe uh, that's really driving their performance. And in terms of the ratings on these uh, private equity trusts and how they compare to the sector as a whole, obviously there's quite a mixed bag in there. We talked about that during uh, the sell-off last year. Obviously, discounts widened a lot, but not uh, perhaps as wide as they did during the global financial crisis. And they've kind of stabilised, I think it's fair to say, around, well, it's it's a broad church, as I said. So perhaps we could just look at these two and then see how that compares to the sector average. Perhaps that's the best way to do it. That's right. So Oakley Capital Investments, we estimate trading on about a 17% discount or so at the moment. And that compares with an average over the previous 12 months, about 32%. Um, So it's uh, certainly been re-rated over uh, recent months. Uh, In the case of Standard Life Private Equity, probably on about 20-21% discount at the moment. And again, that compares with its average over the previous 12 months of of 29%. But when you do look at that 12-month average, you've got to factor in that that includes that kind of March, April, May period last year when a lot of these funds were quite badly derated and have bounced back quite a lot since then. That 20% discount for Standard Life, probably off the top of my head, that wouldn't be massively out of line with how it's traded over the last two or three years, probably slightly wider. And I think that's um, one of the things that people are looking at here with a lot of these private equity funds. We're starting to get now some inkling of how their year-end valuations. So when we hit February, or particularly in March, we'll start to get uh, revaluations as at the end of 2020. And it'll be at that point that we'll really see where they're trading to their updated NAVs. Finally, we're going to move on to the property sector. We're not going to talk in depth about this. There have been a lot of NAV announcements from the property sector uh, this week. Um, they all sort of come in a rush. So what, what we're thinking of doing is we might just do a sort of general picture next week or the week after that when we've got all the data in to see how they've all performing. But um, first of all, just give us a general comment about uh, what you've seen from the NAV so far. Is there any kind of general pattern in there? I mean, that's getting slightly better, I imagine. Yeah, I think that's right. I think as as we've discussed in, in previous weeks, clearly property, commercial property has been hit very hard over the last year for obvious reasons. Um, if there is a pattern, it seems to be that uh, rent collection has improved, as you might expect, as the year has gone on. Though arguably, we haven't seen the full impact, particularly for those UK commercial property plays, of lockdown 3.0. Uh, and exactly how that plays out. But there is a kind of more positive pattern developing in terms of the dividends. Uh, again, as you may remember, a lot of the dividends were cut or suspended back last year in that March, April, May period. A lot of them were reinstated and a lot of them have been subsequently increased. And it's finding out where those uh, valuations are likely to be. But we're starting to see those values come through as at the end of 2020. Uh, and over the next week or so, we'd expect to see a fuller picture. Okay, well, we'll look forward to seeing how it looks from the first week of February and to look forward to talking to you then, Simon. Thank you. This has been a Moneymakers Investment Trust podcast. These podcasts are independently produced and edited and are available on all leading podcast channels. You can sign up on the Moneymakers website, www.money-makers.co, to be notified every time a new podcast is available. Thank you for listening and please keep safe in these difficult times.